When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. In 164 BC, a princess was born to the royal family of Egypt. Now, the royal family wasn't technically Egyptian. There hadn't been a native Egyptian pharaoh since Nectanebo II got defeated by the Persians back in 342 BC. The current dynasty hailed from Macedonia. But regardless, the adorable little newborn princess was named Cleopatra Thea, or Cleopatra the Goddess. And though her family, the Ptolemies, had already ruled Egypt for a century and a half, and would keep doing so for over a century more, the time and place that she was born into were very, very unstable. We mentioned the rivalry between the current king, Ptolemy VI, and his younger brother, Ptolemy Fizkon, also known as Potbelly. They briefly made peace before Antiochus invaded, a peace reinforced by Gaius Papilius, but as soon as he left, Ptolemy Fizkon was back to the same old tricks. Claiming it was the will of the people, he somehow managed to usurp the throne and expel his brother from Egypt. Ptolemy was forced to find refuge in Cyprus but eventually decided to sail for Rome to get the Senate's support. So, what's the connection to Cleopatra Thea? Well, Thea was the child of the 22-year-old King Ptolemy VI and his sister-wife, the 21-year-old Cleopatra II. And since we don't know the exact date of her birth, she could have been born in Alexandria, or Cyprus, or Rome, or even on a boat. Because that year was pretty insane for her parents, and without giving too much away, would end up setting the tone for much of Thea's life. By 164, Rome was already the dominant power in the Mediterranean which made it the de facto court of appeal for settling these kinds of disputes. Because the Senate was fair, just, and impartial? Well, sure, okay. But 
also because it could often be bribed to give a favorable ruling. A ruling that was always, at least implicitly, backed by the threat of military force. So get used to everyone going to the Senate to try to plead their case. Rome proposed a power-sharing agreement, where Cleopatra and Ptolemy kept control of Egypt, while the 18-year-old Fizcon was made viceroy of neighboring Cyrenaica. And Fizcon was like, sure, that's totally fine. I like Cyrenaica better anyway. But you were pretty sure that was sarcasm. Things were no less crazy in Syria, where Antiochus's death created a situation similar to the death of his brother, Seleucus IV. Antiochus's eight-year-old son, Antiochus V, was technically the Seleucid king. But the real power lay with the young king's regent, a military commander named Lysias. One mystery in the whole affair is what became of Laodice IV, the widow of Antiochus IV and mother of Antiochus V. She hadn't been mentioned since Antiochus IV had killed her son by Seleucus IV, which couldn't have made for a very happy marriage. Which might also explain why Antiochus IV had soon taken up with a concubine. Regardless, Laodice had no role in the regency, and may have passed away a few years earlier. Which meant that Lysias was fully in charge. Unfortunately, when he got the news, he was also fully preoccupied with a major revolt in Judea. Not everyone was thrilled with the increasing Hellenization promoted by Antiochus IV, particularly the banning of traditional Jewish practices. And three years earlier, a Jewish priest named Mattathias had made his views pretty clear. According to 1 Maccabees, when he saw a local making a pagan sacrifice, he ran and slew him upon the altar. Also, the king's commissioner, who compelled men to sacrifice, he killed at that time, and the altar he pulled down. In the wake of the murders, Mattathias grabbed his sons and made for the Gophna Hills. The clan gathered together a small force, and in 166, under Mattathias' son, Judah Maccabee, they fought a skirmish with Seleucid troops under a commander named Apollonius. Apollonius was killed, his soldiers fled, and the Maccabees had won their first victory. Antiochus IV next sent the Seleucid governor of Coel Syria, a man named Saron, to wipe them out. The Seleucid force came under attack near the village of Beth Horon, and again, once their commander was killed, the rest of his soldiers retreated. As an aside, bloodline listeners may recall Beth Horon as the same place a large Roman force was destroyed at the beginning of the later Jewish War. And, as another aside, Maccabee means the hammer. So the Seleucids and Ptolemies weren't the only ones making with the cool nicknames. The third time usually being the charm, a new governor was assigned to Coel Syria and tasked with crushing the revolt. But the next engagement, the Battle of Emmaus, was another victory for the Maccabees, 
whose reputation and forces continued to grow with each Seleucid defeat. It also didn't hurt that they were able to collect weapons and armor from raided camps and dead Seleucid soldiers. In 165, before leaving Antioch, Antiochus IV had ordered Lysias to deal with the matter personally. The following year, Lysias led an army south, and Judah Maccabee came to confront him near the hilltop fortress of Bethzur. According to 1st Maccabees, in the ensuing battle, there were slain of the host of Lysias 5,000 men. Lysias then halted the campaign and returned back north to Antioch, which sounds like a pretty decisive defeat. But Granger notes that this was around the same time that news reached Syria of Antiochus's death in Lemius. Learning that a commander named Philip had possession of the royal insignia, Lysias may have also headed back north to try to secure his power base, which mainly meant direct bodily possession of the young Antiochus V. The Maccabees used the resulting respite to capture the city of Jerusalem. They then built up the city's defenses and cleansed the temple of pagan influences. They also besieged a Jerusalem fortress holding the high priest Menelaus and other officials, who somehow snuck out, made it to Antioch, and convinced the Seleucids to send help. This time, Lysias brought a much larger army, including the young king Antiochus V and a sizable contingent of war elephants. First Maccabees waxes poetic that the sun shone upon the shields of gold and brass, the mountains glistened therewith, and shined like lamps of fire. And though they made a spirited defense, the Maccabees were driven from Jerusalem. Which was fine, except while Lysias was away, Philip's army had returned from Elemius and captured the city of Antioch. First Maccabees reports that Lysias departed in all haste, and returned unto Antioch, where he found Philip to be master of the city. So he fought against him and took the city by force. Philip isn't mentioned again and apparently died in the conflict. For the first time since Antiochus's death, the Seleucid Empire was relatively stable. The Maccabees were subdued, if not eliminated, and a potential usurper had been defeated and killed. But just like when Antiochus had been riding high after wiping the floor with Ptolemaic Egypt, Lysias was confronted in his moment of triumph by the region's most prominent buzzkills. Yep, you guessed it, the Romans. As Polybius reports, a three-man commission led by a former consul named Gnaeus Octavius, arrived in Antioch in 163 to arrange the affairs of the kingdom in accordance with the will of the Senate. The leverage they used was the Treaty of Apamea, which had technically expired on the death of Antiochus the Great. But regardless, they pressured Lysias and the young boy king to implement its provisions. 
which included severely limiting the Seleucid fleet and eliminating their war elephants. So Lysias burned his warships in the harbor, and then, and PETA members, please cover your ears, he ordered all his elephants to be hamstrung. As Granger points out, this was a particularly cruel way of killing them, letting them die slowly and loudly of starvation and thirst, and was almost guaranteed to heighten resentment toward Rome. Which may have been Lysias' intention, a passive-aggressive, I'll do what you say, but you're not going to like how I do it. He may have thought it'd make him look tough and help his popularity. But if that was the plan, it blew up in his face. Because a short while later, the lead commissioner, Gnaeus Octavius, was assassinated in Laodicea. Well, shoot. Not much to do but give the guy a proper burial and send envoys to Rome to convince the Senate that the death had absolutely nothing to do with Lysias. And while the Senate remained stone-faced while considering their response, there was one man present to receive the news with barely concealed excitement. Who was he? Well, he was none other than the rightful king of Syria, the eldest son of Seleucus IV and now 22-year-old Seleucid prince, Demetrius. By 163, Demetrius had been a Roman hostage for going on 16 years, which was obviously the vast majority of his life. But just to be clear, when we say hostage, we don't mean bound and gagged and shoved in a cold, dark cell. According to historian Jake Nabel, Seleucid hostages moved in the highest circles of Roman power. Demetrius could roam within the city and even outside of it at will. Slaves attended him. He owned dogs and nets for hunting trips in the nearby town of Circei. And, most important for the progress of our story, he was apparently not guarded. According to Polybius, when word had originally reached Rome of Antiochus IV's death, Demetrius being in the very prime of youthful manhood, entered the Senate and made a speech, demanding that the Romans should restore him to his kingdom, which belonged to him by far better right than to the children of Antiochus. He also affirmed that Rome was his country and the nurse of his youth, that the sons of the senators were all to him as brothers, and the senators as fathers. And while the speech made a pretty strong case, it didn't change the Senate's vote. Because, as Polybius notes, they believed that the youth and weakness of the boy who had succeeded to the kingdom were more to their interest. So Demetrius basically got shot down in flames. But now that Lysias had seriously screwed up, he felt he had a second chance. And, as Polybius reports, Demetrius immediately summoned Polybius to an interview. Yeah, you heard that right, because one of Demetrius's BFFs was none other than the famous historian Polybius, who's also the source for most information on Demetrius's stay in Rome. 
Polybius came from a noble Greek family in the city of Megalopolis, and had eventually risen to the rank of strategos, or general, in the Achaean League. The League had backed Rome against Antiochus the Great, but had taken a more neutral stance in the recent war against Perseus, which resulted in a thousand young Achaean nobles being taken as Roman hostages in 167, including the 33-year-old Polybius. Much like Demetrius, while in Rome, Polybius moved in the very highest circles, including that of Lucius Aemilius Paulus Macedonicus the victor of the recent Macedonian War. Paulus even entrusted Polybius to educate his sons, one of whom was the soon-to-be-famous Scipio Aemilianus. If you're interested, Mike Duncan has a great History of Rome Annex episode on Polybius, who's really just a super-interesting guy. So Demetrius calls in Polybius, who's around 15 years his senior, and asks if he thinks the time is right to go back to the Senate. Polybius recommends he not stumble twice on the same stone, which is pretty solid advice. But another friend, who Polybius describes as simple-minded and very young, tells Demetrius to go with his gut. This time, Demetrius tried to present the Senate with a fait accompli, and said, Hey, since you guys are cool with Antiochus V, I'm not really an effective hostage against Seleucid good behavior anymore, so I'll probably just, you know, hit the road. This approach worked about as well as the first, and, according to Polybius, Demetrius was finally convinced that Polybius had given him good advice. But Polybius also notes that Demetrius was naturally of a lofty spirit and possessed sufficient daring to carry out his resolutions. An old friend arrived from Syria and confirmed that the kingdom was falling into chaos, and Demetrius just basically had to show up to claim it. And man, I'm sorry, but that was it. Demetrius just had to get back home. Things finally came to a head in 162 BC. And since Polybius clearly relishes his role in the ensuing prison break, I'm just going to quote him at length. To frame things up, Polybius started by contacting a man named Manilus, with whom he had a strong friendship and confidence. In fact, Manilus was the ambassador of the young King Ptolemy VI, who was in Rome on official business, and more on that in a bit. Polybius reports that he accordingly introduced Manilus with all speed to Demetrius, and with warm expressions of regard. Being trusted with the secret, Manilus undertook to have the necessary ship in readiness, and to see that everything required for the voyage was prepared. Having found a Carthaginian vessel anchored at the mouth of the Tiber, which had been on sacred service, he chartered it. By sacred service, Polybius mentions the ship had been carrying offerings sent by the Carthaginians to their ancestral gods at Tyre. He then continues that Manilus made no secret about it, but chartered the vessel for his own return voyage. 
and therefore was able to make his arrangements for provisions also without exciting suspicion, talking openly with the sailors and making an appointment with them. Soon enough, the shipmaster had everything ready, and nothing remained except for Demetrius to do his part. Demetrius dispatched trusted allies ahead to Syria to gather intelligence and lay some groundwork. Then, on the critical night, he arranged for a friend to throw a party as a distraction. Demetrius being a bit of a party animal himself, Polybius was actually kind of worried that the prince might end up drinking too much and somehow screw up the plan. So Polybius sent him a poetic note that essentially said, Dude, put down your cup and get on the boat, which managed to grab his attention. Demetrius told everyone he wasn't feeling well, headed home, and dismissed his servants with the story that he was heading off on a hunting trip. Then he grabbed his go-bag and his closest friends and headed down to the docks. The agent Manilus met them there. He told the sailors that Demetrius and his friends were Ptolemaic soldiers and the party needed to depart for Egypt right away. The ship set sail just as dawn was breaking, and things had apparently been arranged so well that it was literally four days before anyone even noticed that Demetrius was missing. As Polybius reports, on the fifth day, the Senate was hastily summoned to consider the matter, when Demetrius had already cleared the Straits of Messina. But with that kind of head start, the Senate gave up all idea of pursuit. They did send a commission of three Roman officials, headed by the previous year's consul Tiberius Gracchus, to travel east and see how things played out. And yes, Tiberius Gracchus was the father of the famous Gracchi brothers. So let's leave Demetrius on his mini-odyssey and circle back to the Ptolemaic court because, as usual, the feuding royals had been up to all kinds of no good. Though he'd been given rule over Cyrenaica, Fiscon decided the following year that he also kind of wanted Cyprus. Since Rome had brokered the previous deal, in 163 he sailed to Rome to ask the Senate's approval. The body applied its usual metric— what's in the best interest of Rome, and decided, sure, let's carve Ptolemy's empire up a bit more. So Fiscon was given the Senate's blessing to take control of Cyprus. They even sent a few Roman officials along to help smooth over the transition. Not one to waste time, the 19-year-old Potbelly sailed for Greece, enlisted a huge mercenary army, and prepared to conquer the island. But the Roman commissioners slowed his role by telling him, yeah, um, actually, we're supposed to install you without any bloodshed. To which Fizcon likely sighed and responded, okay, we'll try it your way first. He then sailed for home and set up camp with a thousand mercenaries from Crete. The Roman officials went to Alexandria and tried to convince the 23-year-old Ptolemy VI that it was only fair and right to hand over Cyprus. But Ptolemy launched a charm offensive that eventually won them over. 
Meanwhile, Fizcon was forced to put down a rebellion in his own home territory of Cyrenaica, only to get the news after much delay that he was not getting Cyprus. So he sent more ambassadors off to the Senate to ask, Hey, did you guys give me Cyprus or did you not? Because my brother is not handing it over. Which meant Ptolemy VI had to send his ambassador, Manilus, to argue his side of the case. Which is why Manilus was in Rome in 162 and able to conspire with Polybius. At the end of the big senatorial smackdown, the Romans once again sided with Fizcon and told him to go take Cyprus. They gave their ruling a bit more oomph by breaking off all diplomatic ties with King Ptolemy VI, which included shipping Manilus back to Egypt. Not that the Romans would provide any troops, this was a purely Macedonian affair. But they'd, you know, be more than happy to cheer him on from the sidelines. So, with the shadows getting long on 162, a pair of young, ambitious Macedonian princes were sailing east to seek their fortunes. Alexander's ghost dangled images of youthful glory, spear-one land, and endless empires. But both men would instead be confronting a far more constricted reality. And, oddly enough, one critical nexus between the two princes was an infant girl lying in her crib named Cleopatra Thea. <laughs> 